Well, this morning, we are reinstituting a practice that many of us uh, took for granted before the pandemic, and I want to spend the sermon time this morning here at the table. As many of you know who've been here for a while, our first Sundays, we dedicate more time to the table before we go off to the Family Life Center to the tables. And uh, that practice, that tradition is really a reflection of our sermon text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Paul's first letter to the people of Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll work through this text here in a moment. We've been working through a series called Can't Live Without Them, a series about relationships in the church, relationships that really help us become the people that God has called us to be. It takes community to be the full version of ourselves. We are the most who we are when we are in community and in relationship with others. And in a way, we are continuing this series this morning by looking at the Corinthians. We really can't live without the people of Corinth. Believe it or not, and when you read 1 Corinthians, you might wonder, well, how is that possible? This is such a messed up church. Uh, but there is something that I was alerted to this week in my readings, and, and that is that uh, the only place we really have Paul talking about the Lord's Supper is 1 Corinthians. Uh, the only instruction that we have on the Lord's Supper is 1 Corinthians. And it's an interesting exercise to do, to think through, what would our practice be if we did not have... 1 Corinthians, this church that was really messed up, this church that had a, a warped view of the body of Christ and of the Lord's Supper and what the church is all about. So I am thankful that we have uh, the Corinthian people and all the problems that they had. We wouldn't know what Paul thought about the Lord's Supper if it wasn't for this group of people. Uh, this morning, for a reflection, I wanted to hone in on two phrases from this passage. The first one is that as often as we take the cup, as often as we eat this bread and take the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. The second phrase is discerning the body, and we'll hit those in sequence. So let's hear the Word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. 
For I received from the Lord what I have delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So a few weeks ago, I was in Memphis for the on-campus group that I'm meeting with through this program I'm part of a cohort of seven ministers working through this school degree. And on the Friday afternoon of that week, a very intense week of studying, the director of the program, Steve Clower, and many of you heard him speaking at Eastside in July, he took this group of ministers to the Civil Rights Museum there in Memphis. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, For those of you who have not been, that museum is built around the motel room where Martin Luther King Jr. was shot when he went off on his balcony and he was shot by a murderer. That motel room is preserved and really is the climax of the museum. And before you get there, you have to work your way through different corridors and there is the telling of the story of civil rights. There are some interactive displays Uh, with telling the story of slavery and especially life in the Jim Crow South. One of those displays is a full-sized bus. And for the history buffs, you walk in and you know know immediately what's going on in this bus. Uh, You walk onto the bus and there are no figures in it except for one, a black woman sitting, oh, two or three seats from the front, and a bus driver. And I don't know if it's motion uh, censored, but when I walked onto that bus, I was by myself. Uh, All of a sudden, these voices started to come through the loudspeaker. Uh, The voice of the bus driver uh, telling this black woman, you need to get up and you need to go to the back of the bus because a white man had come in and he needed to sit down. And then there's this other voice that comes on, an actress playing the part of Rosa Parks defiantly saying, no. And I stood there in that bus, and I felt, I felt a sting. And I, I thought, how humiliating that must have been to be asked to go to the back of the bus just based on the color of your skin. I found many things in that museum to be very moving, and I would encourage you to go there if you ever make it to Memphis. But this episode, and really the whole concept of segregation, is not new. It is actually part of a fallen world. It is the pattern of a fallen world. Ever since Genesis Genesis chapter 3, there has been segregation in one form or another. Societies have been built upon, societies continue to be built upon the haves and the have-nots. We divide ourselves into different social groups. We divide ourselves into different classes, the upper class often getting the best seats in the house. And even in a free society like ours, there is still separation. 
There's denial of access depending on where you are on the social ladder. Perhaps how much money you have in your bank account. That's the way things have always been. And until the return of our Lord, I'm afraid that's the way things always will be. Not that we don't work to do our part to bring about a more just society. But this is how the world was whenever our Messiah arrived 2,000 years ago. This is the structure of the world in which Paul preached, the Greco-Roman world. Understanding that culture there in Corinth, it's pretty easy to put the pieces together of what was going on there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there in Corinth. A city that valued competition and wealth, oratory skill, athletic prowess, and social status. A typical house of a wealthy person in Corinth, and more than likely it was a wealthy person who was housing the church. They had the homes that were big enough to do this. But a typical house of a wealthy person in Corinth would have had a dining room with a table, and it could accommodate around nine people. And that room would have opened up to a courtyard where 30 or 40 people could stand or sit. And you can imagine who would have occupied the dining area. The friends, the, the wealthy people there would have been there for the dining room experience there around the table. And if a meal started in the afternoon, it was the wealthy. Uh, they were the ones who were able to have the leisure time to show up early and start eating. The laborers, the slaves, had to wait. They had to work. They worked with their hands. Something that was frowned upon by the elite there in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, something, by the way, that Paul did as a leather worker there in Corinth. But these laborers and these slaves would no doubt be relegated to the courtyard whenever they showed up in the evening. And all the food would have been eaten. Or maybe they would have been able to get the crumbs from the table. This was the pattern of life in pagan Corinth. But Paul heard that the gathering of the church in the common meal, which most definitely would have included the Lord's Supper. It was set up in such a way that mirrored the culture. The wealthy helping themselves to the best seats in the house, the best food on the table. They had first dibs on the wine to a point where by the time the laborers and the slaves showed up, some of the wealthy were already drunk. And Paul sees this as a complete mockery of what the supper was all about. Ultimately, what the cross was all about, this dividing and exploitation of the poor. He says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. But it's a phrase in verse 26 that I want us to consider as we take the bread this morning. After recounting the institution of the Lord's Supper that Paul had received from the Lord, no doubt from the memories of those who were actually with Jesus on the night he was betrayed, Paul has received these words. Paul ends this section of recounting the Lord's Supper with this phrase. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You proclaim, proclamation, 
That is the central task of the church, proclaiming the gospel to a lost world. And Paul seems to be saying here that the very way the Corinthians are participating in the Lord's Supper is a living sermon to their neighbors and by maintaining the patterns of the prevailing culture, by separating and dividing rich and poor, by sending people to the courtyard, sending them to the back of the bus. This was a parody of that which Christ had ushered in the kingdom of God. When we gather around this table, when we remember the death of our Lord Jesus, we are remembering that the cross has turned the values of the world upside down. And when we gather around this table, we are announcing that a new world order has been ushered in. There are no seating charts in the church. Well, we do have a seating chart. But it's not based on what the Corinthians were basing it on. In the church, at Brentwood Oaks Church of Christ, there's no rich or poor or black or white or Asian or Indian or Hispanic or male or female or young or old. We all come to this table on the same plane. We all come to this table with the same desperate need in our hearts. The mercy and the grace as redeemed sinners. We need this. And in a world that's built on competition and separating and dividing a world that there's a spark where people are trying to achieve unity, I would say trying to manufacture unity without a table, without a cross. We have a sermon to proclaim. We'll see it tonight at 5.30 in this room. As we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, you've rescued us through Jesus Christ. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension to your right hand. May our conduct and our thanksgiving embody the message of the cross and the unity that this bread represents. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's continue to hear the Word of God from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, 
and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Some of your translations may say fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it is not for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So for the first few months after the pandemic, I was voicing my desire to a few people that uh, we needed to start passing the trays as quickly as possible uh, to get back to normal, uh, not knowing that we still had a long ways to go before there was any type of normalcy to take place. I had already grown weary of the, I don't know what that bread is, uh, styrofoam perhaps, uh, the sound of the packets and the plastic. But as the pandemic lingered on, I became a bit agnostic when it came to passing the trays or taking the packets. And we still have packets, by the way, as was mentioned, uh, if you're more comfortable taking uh, using those packets for the Lord's Supper. Part of this was just the fact that uh, I had formed a new habit. Part of it was the positive aspect of those packets. We do take the bread at the same time. Uh, we do take the cup at the same time, and that's something that some of our prayer leaders highlighted over the last two years. It got to a point where I really didn't think about it anymore. But earlier this summer, I was worshiping with some fellow counselors at a church camp, and we were there on a Sunday morning, and I was part of a communion service, participating in a communion service, where they were passing the trays, something I hadn't done for two years, and I still didn't think much of it. Until the person to my left handed me a tray, and I broke the bread, and I turned to my neighbor sitting to my right, and I handed them the tray. And just that motion, I had all these memories start to flood my mind. The memories of, well, the 1,800 times that I had done this, passed the trays. Uh, memories of the past. But the one memory that just shot through my mind that I did not expect was the scene from the movie Places in the Heart. I've talked about this before. I've preached on this before. It's been 10 years. But that's the movie with Sally Field in Waxahachie, Texas in 1935. It's a movie that begins and ends with a church service and between the bookends, there are all these stories of broken and flawed people there in Waxahachie. Uh, the movie begins in great tragedy. Uh, Sally Field's husband is a sheriff, and he's called out to go handle a situation where uh, a young African-American, a teenage African-American man, is drunk, and he is shooting his pistol into the air right in the middle of town, and so he goes to address this situation and he knew the young man 
uh, one might even say that they were friends. And so he was trying to de-escalate and the teenager accidentally shot and killed the sheriff. And then a mob formed, a lynch mob, and they killed the teenage African-American with a lynching. That's the first five minutes. The rest of the movie is about Sally Field trying to hold her family together and the messiness of life there in Waxahachie. There's a lot of sin, greed, racism, a scandalous affair, and many other markers of human fallenness mixed with the love of Christ. At the end of the movie, we go back to the church into a scene of the Lord's Supper, and the camera zooms in on the passing of the trays. And at the beginning of this scene, when the church service begins, there's not a lot of people there, but whenever the trays are passed around, all of a sudden the church building is full. Every seat taken, standing room only. And the trays are passed around, and when the cup is passed, there are these words that one person says to another, some of the classic words of the Lord's Supper. Peace of God. Peace of God. And in a surprise twist, in what turns out to be what I think is one of the most profound reflections on the Lord's table, Sally Field takes the bread and she hands it to a person sitting next to her, a man, who happens to be her deceased husband. And I remember the first time I saw that, I was really confused by that scene. I said, well, this must be a memory. It wasn't a memory. She passed the cup to him. And then he took the trays, and he passed it to a young man who was sitting next to him. The African-American teenager who had shot and killed him, and the sheriff, and this young teenager are sharing the bread and the cup and they look at one another and they say, peace of God. That's the scene that went through my mind there at that church camp when I was handing the trays for the first time in two years. Paul uses a phrase in this letter to the Corinthians that's actually a source of debate He says, let each person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Discerning the body. What does that mean to discern the body? Well, I believe there are layers to that phrase. There is the call to remember the body of Christ on the cross. There is room for individual introspection at the table and although I think the setting I grew up in the pendulum swung too far in that direction but it is a moment where we recognize our own unworthiness we recognize the gift that has been given to us not that we deserved it and yet we have been given a seat at the table it is well it's unbelievable 
But given the context of Paul's instruction to the Corinthians, there's another layer to the Lord's Supper. There's another layer to discerning the body. That this time of sharing the bread and drinking the cup is not, as the old hymn says, my God and I. The Lord's Supper is about God and us. The love of Christ compels us to remember not only Him, but to remember our neighbor, the flawed and broken and redeemed person who's sitting to our left and to our right and in front of us and behind us. The vertical aspect of the Lord's Supper informs the horizontal that is reinforced when we pass the bread and the cup to one another. We experience together God's transforming love. God's love for me. God's love for my brother and my sister. And ultimately, the whole world. You certainly don't have to do this, but I've made it a practice over the last decade or so. Uh, Part of it was watching Places in the Heart. Part of it was experiencing the Lord's Supper in another church, but I speak when I hand those, uh, when I hand the bread and the cup to the person next to me, normally my wife, and she knows this. When I pass the bread, I say, the body of Christ. And when I pass the cup, when I hand the tray to her, when we share the cup together, I say those precious words, peace of God. That's what the new covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ is all about. God's shalom that we experience on an individual level, but we experience in a corporate way as the body of believers that extends well beyond these walls this morning. So with those thoughts in mind, let's pray as we share the cup. Father, you have drawn us together here at Brentwood Oaks, a people gathered around the table in Christ. We are your children, not because of any righteous things that we have done, but because of the blood of the new covenant, a covenant where we find forgiveness of sins and renewed love for one another. May we experience together your shalom as we drink the cup of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. When Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom.